Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. Welcome, listeners. Today is the day for episode 237 and the beginning of a new series of interviews. This time, our guest is Leanne Elliott. She's a business psychologist, a founder of a consultancy, a leadership coach, and the co-host of the Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture podcast with her husband, Al Elliott. If you remember, we spoke to Al in episodes 235 and 236. So how will the discussions with Leanne be different? Well, let's find out. We're going to start off our conversation by talking through how Leanne got into the discipline of psychology. And you'll also hear about what made her specialize in and focus on business psychology specifically. If you've ever read The Talent Code by Dan Coyle, I think this falls into the category of ignition but I won't say anything else about that part. We're going to talk to Leanne about the difference between coaching as a profession and being a mentor. We've had that discussion in some other episodes as well, but let's see what she has to say about it. Leanne also gives us some interesting points and thoughts on resumes that I think you'll want to utilize if you're applying for jobs. And probably the biggest section of this episode is dedicated to the topic that is at the forefront of many people's minds at the time of this release, and that's layoffs. Whether it's in the tech industry or somewhere else, what is the psychological impact of a layoff to the people who were laid off, the people who remain at the company after a layoff has happened, and the leaders who execute those layoffs? How does that work and how do you process it after a situation like that happens in each of those cases? And how should you talk about that in future interviews? It's an action-packed episode, so let's get right to it. Here we go with part one of our discussion with Leanne Elliott. Leanne Elliott, welcome to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what your current role is and uh, what you do there? I am a certified business psychologist and leadership coach. I've founded um, my own consultancy with my co-founder and husband, Al Elliott. And we help primarily owner-led businesses navigate people and culture. So typically business leaders who may not have that background or that experience um, in terms of how to engage and, and motivate people. And as a side, we have the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast, which is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. And that does a similar thing, really. But we talk about lots of different topics there from leadership to neurodiversity to toxic workplaces, all with the view of giving 
again, I want to let businesses the tools that they need to create, as we say, amazing workplace cultures. Can I ask a little bit about your origin story? Um, I think that there's a really good episode that you and Al recorded uh, about that, and we'll link to both of your origin stories. <laughs> um, but if you could take us through that just a little bit, it, it's fascinating to listen about how people got started, like what they see as the roots of their their trajectory. So I think from from that episode, I, I shared fairly early on. I knew that psychology was a subject that I wanted to pursue. Uh, when I was in high school, one of my friends, my close friends, lost her mum very suddenly to meningitis. And it was a real shocking moment as a 14, 15 year old and not really knowing how to navigate that moment individually, but also not knowing how to support and be there for my friend. So the school was really amazing. It was a small school and they brought in a clinical psychologist to talk to us, a whole class. And she really just talked to us about how we were feeling helping us navigate what is normal to feel in that situation, helped us understand that this is a trauma. This is something unusual for somebody our age to go through. And she gave us some really great coping strategies, helped us understand how we can be there for our friend, which is really just to be there, to listen, to ask questions, not judge, not try to overly reassure. And I remember coming out thinking, I feel better. I still feel upset by the situation but I feel more in control both of my emotions and how to navigate this this situation so for me psychology then was like huh interesting that's a powerful thing that 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 woman did in there um so at that point she was actually she stayed around for a few months actually in and out and would come and talk to us either individually or as a group and I asked her you know how did you get into psychology if I want to do psychology how do I do that she gave me some really great advice about different subjects to take different options that you had so from that point before I chose my A-levels, which is the kind of 16 to 18 qualifications we do in the UK before we go to university or college. So I had the information I needed to know what I need to do academically to pursue a degree in psychology. When I was doing my degree, I thought, because there's so many different areas of psychology, there's so many different areas, and even within areas, there's different areas. And because I thought I wanted to be a counselling psychologist, and I think this probably stemmed from the experience I had in high school. So I was given the advice by a lecturer to try and get some voluntary experience. I think it's maybe 2004, 2005. Um, and the Samaritans, which is a listening-based service in the UK, which helps people who are experiencing feelings of distress and despair, including suicidal feelings, were looking for listeners. So people would phone up, talk about their problems, what they're experiencing. So I applied for that and it was a really detailed recruitment process and training process. And quickly realised I did not want to be a counselling psychologist. The weight of that being put in somebody else's world who is experiencing that level of distress is a lot. And I think I felt that I wasn't quite, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was an age thing. I didn't think I was quite ready for it. But for some reason, it just didn't quite resonate in the same way that I, I thought it would. And then in my third year, I did an occupational psychology or business psychology module. And it all just seemed to click. It was always like, OK, cool. So we can, as psychologists, help business leaders create environments for the majority, to experience positive health and well-being and purpose and meaning and fulfillment and joy. And that just felt really special to me. Um, so after a year out to save some money to go back to university, I did my master's. So that was 2008 that I graduated, which isn't the best time to graduate. <laughs> just, you know, the start of the global financial crisis. So jobs were slim, including, you know, particularly in HR and people and culture, which is where I sat. Lucky enough to get into a HR consultancy. Stayed there for about 18 months or so. 
And the last six months was getting very samey in terms of the projects we were doing. Didn't feel like I was being developed or being challenged or pushed. And I remember thinking to myself, there must be an opportunity, given the current climate and people struggling, there must be an opportunity to use my education, the skills I have. So welfare to work, which is what it's called in the UK, um, was an industry that was booming. (laughs) Basically, it's a government-backed scheme that helps people who are unemployed regain employment. So obviously at that point, when the employment unemployment rates were going through the roof, there were a lot of organisations looking for coaches. So I applied for that, um, got the job, and that's really when the whole trajectory of my career changed in a way that I didn't anticipate it to do. But I'd say that's really the start of my, I guess that's my origin, how I went from, you know, being a, a kid, a high school kid, to figure out what I wanted to do, to actually then really starting my career. Yeah, I, it was fascinating to hear about your personal experience with a psychologist and how that influenced you to seek that out as a as an area of study but then to go through the process of either shadowing or you know taking on that role of kind of one-on-one with somebody in crisis and realize oh this isn't what I want to do but at the same time taking somebody on with coaching in a job crisis like that was fulfilling is was it the stakes that were different there or was it the circumstance um was it experience and uh maturity what what do you think was the difference there it's a good question i think it's probably a combination of all those things as much as i knew that by joining the smartens and having that experience of supporting people in crisis I, i ruled out clinical psychology and counseling psychology I still found a great amount of fulfillment in that voluntary role and I actually did that for five years up until the point that I got my job at Pinnacle People as a coach. And it's only at that point that I thought there's going to be too much crossover here because part of Samaritans is it's not, it's not an advice service, it's a listening service. You're there to help people navigate their own emotions and their own feelings, their own options. And if one of those options is to end their life, then that is a valid option that they have. We're not there to solve problems. So when I started my job with Pinnacle as a coach, I realized then that my mindset in that one-to-one environment had to shift to much more pragmatic, practical advice. I was there to, to change their mind and help them explore more viable options. So that's the point at which I, I left Samaritans. So I think in terms of a coach, I'll be honest, would I, without the financial crisis, would I have pursued that avenue of work? Probably not. I probably would have stayed in organizational level HR, people and culture, because that's where I found my joy in terms of having impact but I recognized that as an ambitious individual this was a route that gave me options gave me progression it was challenging enough that I felt like I was developing and developing a skill set that had a basis in in terms of Samaritans and it was also a role that I could see progression in in terms of management and I thought well the next best thing is if I'm not helping organizations create great managers maybe this is also an opportunity to you know test my own nerve and actually be a manager myself. So I can't honestly say it was a vocation that was a calling that I desperately wanted to do, but it was one given the economic circumstances provided good opportunities, uh, good opportunities for learning, good opportunities for progression. And I guess at that point as well, just some some stability. It was an industry that wasn't going anywhere for a few years given the, the crisis we were all in. So even in an economic downturn, there was opportunity, maybe not doing exactly the thing that you had come across that brought you joy but it was adjacent enough 
that it was using the same skills that you had already developed. And you could see career stability and career progression. And at some point in time, the economics were, were going to turn around. Yeah. And I think one thing that that, that experience was really good at, at framing a mindset for, for me and for Alan, we talk about it a lot. Because we, when you're self-employed, you do lots of different things that don't always make sense at the time. But we've always come to the conclusion that nothing is wasted. That moment and those, that, those skills we develop, that experience that we have, will be applied at some point down the line. So yeah, it was, I'm not sure I, had that, I didn't have that clarity at the time as a 20, what, four-year-old. But certainly looking back, it was probably one of the best things that, that could have happened. Like I said, it, it wasn't a, a trajectory I would have chosen, but perhaps it was the one that I was meant to be on. You know, before we started talking to a lot of people on the podcast, I didn't realize that this idea of coaching was something that went beyond athletics. Maybe that's naivety or whatnot, but I didn't realize that you could get a coach in just about any area. So can you just break down like what is a coach in the non-sports application of that? And what maybe some of the skills gaps you had to fill immediately when you became one? Yeah. So I think I think a coach in any context is pretty much the same, whether it's sports, whether it's life coaching, leadership coaching. It's really there to help somebody navigate situations that can feel overwhelming, situations that have high performance expectations situations in which people are very pressured, situations in which people might be experiencing novel challenges for the first time, whether that be an injury on the football pitch or their first management role. And I think coaching, I think the, the interesting thing with, with coaching is it is very different from mentoring. You don't have to be the expert in what you're coaching that person on. You just have to be able to facilitate the, the conversations and learning and development that that person needs as an individual. And I guess it's the same in sports coaching. There's lots of sports coaches out there that have never played football or baseball. Or um, It's really about finding those, those tools uh, that you can help people come to their, their own conclusions, empower them to find their own routes forward, their own resilience, their own coping mechanisms, their own opportunities. Um, you're an enabler as a coach. And I think that's true across, across all fields of coaching. That is powerful. The idea of being a coach is not to be an expert at the necessarily the technical details of what it is that you're coaching, but to be an expert at the coaching process. Yeah. And I think on the flip side, if you are an, an expert, that's probably where you're tipping into being a mentor. You know, you've been through that experience. You have a similar lived experience. So you're imparting much more of that, much more advice, much more practical steps to take. And I think that's probably the key distinction when if you're if you're looking for some kind of support and you're not sure if it's a coach or a mentor, that's probably the the key thing really to to think of. Do I want somebody with my experience who's going to guide me to get to where they are? Or do I want somebody who's going to help me navigate my own path towards where I want to be? I like that. We should seek coaches outside of our domain of expertise to help us see maybe some of the blind spots we have by being in that domain of expertise. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is the a perfect, yeah, you've summarized it perfectly because you have this you have this distance and clarity as a coach. I'm not absorbed in this world. I don't understand what it is to be a software engineer in a tech world, but I understand, you know, the the challenges you might be experiencing and how similar they are to other challenges that that people might have experienced previously. And really it is about empowerment and enablement. I think, yeah, that's the the key thing. And is the coach also seeking to hold people accountable 
in some way as part of their role? Like, hey, why haven't you done this thing you said you were going to do? Or would you say that that fits into the mentor, coach, and maybe even manager bucket all at the same time? I think it, it, it fits into all three. Um, but absolutely, as a coach, you want to be there to set people goals, challenging goals. Or not necessarily set them. Maybe that's the difference. A manager might set the goal. As a coach, you're helping somebody establish their own goals. And then, you know, helping them to achieve that. But yeah, there is definite pushback and, and definite, um, you know, friendly confrontation as to, as to why people haven't maybe taken the steps that they've identified they need to take to change their current situation. I can't change anyone's situation. And that's true if you're a, you're a coach, you're a mentor, you're a manager. Ultimately, it comes down to that individual accountability. If you want to change, you have to, you have to be the one that drives that. You're helping someone own that process end to end by guiding them. It's so interesting. I, I've been kind of marinating on still this uh, distinction between coach and mentor. And, and I have to say that I think that maybe the traditional sports coach is more of a mentor in terms of giving technical guidance. The right way to do it is this way. This is what I've been seeing you do. But the right way to do it is this way. Right. So that's like specific technical guidance or expectation setting, so so maybe more manager. And now that I say that out loud, it's interesting that some sports do call that role a manager and not a coach. Probably uh, football and uh, baseball, I think specifically. Football as opposed to American football, I think is right. There's a, there's a manager, field manager. Baseball, same thing. There's the, the manager as opposed to the, the coaches. There's position coaches, but even there, they're giving technical advice, not kind of like development advice. It's fascinating. And there can be some crossover. So with, with my job at Pinnacle as a job coach or as a career coach now, there is a little bit more of an element of advice because there's much more transactional elements to being in that coaching relationship. You know, how do I have a killer resume? How do I make myself appealing on LinkedIn? How do I apply for a job and get my resume to the top of the pile? How do I conduct myself as an interview? How do I answer competency-based questions? There are definitely more transactional elements to, to career coaching that do require an element of guidance and advice. If you're looking at more things like leadership coaching or life coaching, then it's, you know, I can't sit here and tell you how to live your life because there are an infinite number of options. There's only, you know, so many options available as to how to present a really compelling resume. Right, right. Multicolor with a picture background. Nick's just trying to trigger me because I have strong opinions. <laughs> yeah, th three columns, right, Nick? Four. Go for four. Four quadrants. The more columns, the better. <laughs> this is a kind of uh, discussions that we've been having about resume writing over time, where it's people tend to think like, well, what I need is to make the resume fancier instead of having more impactful content. Oh, 100%. I never put columns in a resume because the majority of ATS systems can't read them. So don't do that. You need your format to be as simple as possible. Applicant tracking systems are probably going to read your resume and kind of harvest the content for the whatever system the company's using. So you want to have it as simple as possible, right? Headshot, probably not important. <laughs> In fact, I would argue like probably some companies would view it as a form of bias, like injecting bias. So, um, you know, they're going to want to take that out anyway. Yeah. Sorry. Sidetrack. 
It's a good sidetrack. It is a good sidetrack. And I, I think that prompts me to ask this question, Leanne. Since you have been a job coach and also a people manager, and we're talking about resumes and such, in your experience, how much time would you say managers actually, hiring managers actually spend looking at resumes compared to maybe the recruiter or HR person that is harvesting details and and sending good candidates to managers? Ooh, that is a question. I mean, I'd like to say that I'm sure there are some hiring manager recruits out there that spend a good four or five minutes looking over every resume in the first sift. But the reality is they scan it. They're looking for those key things to know if you hit the minimum criteria to be considered further. Um, so I would imagine that your average recruiter or hiring manager probably won't spend more than 20 seconds looking at your resume on the first sift. After that, sure, because then you're having to narrow it down a bit more depending on how many applicants you have. You know, best practice should be that you look at every single resume you've received before you make your decision. That's probably not true either. People probably look at the first hundred resumes that come in. So yeah, there's best practice rules. How many people apply them in the constraints of a very busy job? Um, I think that's a big ask of, of any recruiter. That makes sense. And that kind of tracks with some of the other guests who mentioned they just don't have enough time to spend you know, more than 30 seconds or a minute on one resume, if you look at 100, then that's a lot of time that you're spending. A lot of time. And I think one thing that has always, has always been my advice to people applying for, for jobs, and particularly jobs that like to get a high number of applications, always write a cover letter. Even if it doesn't, you know, the, the job advert doesn't ask for it, always write a cover letter because that's your opportunity to create a document that's very scannable using bullet points that speaks directly to the minimum criteria that the job is asking for. And it is literally doing it word for word. You know, bullet, bullet point one in the job description says 15 years experience in tech. That first bullet point on your cover letter says 15 years experience in tech, illustrated by example, 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 and then so on. Because you're basically making it really, really easy for the recruiter or hiring manager to go, yeah, this person fits the criteria great in the yes pile. And so you would advise... Attaching the cover letter to the resume and submitting as one document to the applicant tracking system, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's uh, super powerful advice. You can have that one for free. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate that. <laughs> we'll get you some Nerd Journey stickers as a payment on that one. I suppose that what's the, the phrase, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does echo the, the current tech layoffs that we're going through here and 2022 and 2023 are an echo or a rhyme of what went on in 2008. It's it's not as widespread. It's focused more on a specific industry. But I would imagine that some of the advice that you gave at the time would be just as relevant uh, uh, to the people that are going through that type of experience today. Am I am I right in that assumption? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So what was the the advice at the time like? The, Welfare to work is a little bit different from somebody who presumably has a lot of skills in, in the tech industry where they're competing with, unfortunately, a lot of other highly skilled people who have all been kind of laid off at the same time. Do, do you see that as a kind of a unique situation or, or are there things that people should be doing as best practice regardless of the situation that they happen to be in? I think there are elements of, of best practice. I think it is a unique situation that that we're seeing at the moment, the volume of tech layoffs um, is, it is huge. 
there's three or four things I would always recommend somebody who's been made redundant to go through. First, take the time to experience that workplace trauma and trauma with a little T, but still a trauma in that there's a very powerful change model, how we as humans experience change called the Bridges Transition Model. And it basically says that an external change is very sudden. So getting made redundant is a very sudden change. You often have very little control over, is done to you and completely changes your world. That in itself needs to be dealt with because that is something that the change is quick. The psychological transition to accept that change is much, much slower. It could be three months, it could be six months, it could be two years if you don't deal with that effectively. So I think the first thing I'd say to anyone who's been made redundant is to process those emotions that come with it, mourn the end of that job, that life, that vision that you had for how things were going to go and deal with that first. Because once you've done that, you can really then start to put your productive energy into the next phase, which is going to be exploring the new opportunities. At that point, I think it's where the more practical things come in. I think what's what's unique about the tech layoffs is that they felt personal. You know, people were engaged in these awesome organizations with these great vision and values and benefits and ways of working and, and pride that came with saying, I work for Twitter, I work for Google. You know, that was part of your identity. So again, which is why you need to deal with that, that first phase, first and foremost. And I think in that more practical stages yes you have a lot of skills yes there are a lot of competition out there that also have the same skills and the same experience in the same industry how attached are you in this moment of economic crisis in the the tech industry how attached are you to staying in tech because there are so many industries out there who would just just love so much to have your skills you know there is a skill shortage in the majority of industries there are ways that you can apply those skills those same skills in a different industry and it is a big change and it's probably not what you envisage for you know the first 10 years of your career but if you're open to exploring that one on a practical level you're probably much more likely to get a role quicker two you're probably much more likely to find a role that challenges you in a different way and that might be good if you've been a bit burnt from the tech industry to have a fresh a fresh start in a new industry and I think third it's really putting those skills to the test if a skill is a real skill it's transferable across contexts, across industries, even across countries. So I think if you really want to challenge those skills, put those skills to the test, hone those skills, then moving industry could be a really cool way to do that. When we say moving industry, this might be doing technical things, but in a non-tech industry, I think is what you're saying, yeah? Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay. See, I thought you meant like maybe even getting... Not doing a role that was focused on technology at all. Well, you could. I guess it's like it's baby steps, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, You know, if you've been attached to tech to go, you know, you could do something completely different. Why not think about operations? That's a big old step. So I think in terms of discovery, that's probably the first thing. What can I use with the skills I have in a different industry? What can I maybe look at my more generalist skills and apply that in another company or another industry? So yeah, there's layers to it. But I think the first thing is, can I endure a career that's perhaps not in, not in tech? I like what you said there about working for these companies became part of people's identity. And I know we've talked about before, John, separating who we are and our identity from what we do. And that's a... And who we do it for. Yeah. That's a great reminder that we should be careful. Definitely. 
Yeah. Are you investing in yourself and your skills and what the capabilities that you have, what are the ca- those capabilities versus who you do it for? Is the important part that you do it for Twitter or Google or Amazon or Facebook slash Meta or Microsoft? Or is it the fact that you can do those things and you can do it for anyone or anywhere that you find enjoyable to do it? So if you're a software engineer, do you have to work for an organization that is primarily focused on developing software? Or could you work in developing software for media and entertainment or oil and gas or healthcare or any of the other verticals that are out there. I think that now that you say that, Leanne, I think one of the things that we fall into is safety and comfort. Like this is where I am. This is where I've been for a few years. And this is where I feel comfortable and everything outside of that, there's a certain element of risk and fear. Yet at the same time, probably every single job that you know people interviewed for they said oh yes i'm absolutely fine with ambiguity uh i i relish ambiguity but when it comes down to it that that's very difficult but i will take a step back and say that's probably even more true for somebody who has not gone through this change process that you talked about where they've they've mourned you know the life that they had and and that situation in that context and actually accepted that that's ended, right? And it's it's very, very easy to cling to that and say, why? Whose mistake was this? Why did they choose me? I got uh, laid off during the Google layoffs in, in January, but it was very easy for me to, uh, you know, when I picked up the phone and, and saw the notice at 2 a.m., it felt a little bit personal. But at 8 a.m. the next morning, when I found out that it was like, I don't know, 12,000 other people. I was like, well, that's, you don't lay off 12,000 people in a, in a personal manner. When people are making huge job cuts, it's, there's some model somewhere. And a lot of times it's third parties that are brought in to do it. It still feels personal that there's no way to get around that. So working through that lowercase t trauma, as you mentioned, like that's critically important as part of the process to, to actually move forward. Absolutely. And I think that's where coaching again can be a really powerful thing. And I've supported a, a few people pro bono from, from the tech industry through some coaching sessions to, to get them back on, on, a, on a different path. And I think the thing that, that I found worked really well in, with those people in particular was exploring, like you say, your identity is so connected to what you do and or can be you know, connected to what you do and who you do it for. And I think this is particularly true in the tech industry that has such fierce workplace cultures you know the sense of belonging there they they did a great job you know but the, the downside of that is that when you have to let people go it is personal it is hard it is a bereavement and one of the the tools that I use is a, a model called vitals and it helps you explore what is important to you as an individual what are my values my interests my temperament uh, around the clock which is kind of what part of the day do I function best in uh, my life goals and my strengths. And it's looking at those things objectively and holistically thinking, what what do I derive from my work? What do I derive from my life, my community? What did I enjoy about that job removed from that context? So for example, if it was the flexible working element and you think, oh, well, I'm only gonna be able to get a remote job in tech, that's something to take away in research. Is that true? That's an important value to you, an important aspect of your work that you want to work remotely or flexibly. Is that assumption true that you can only do that in tech? And I think it's kind of mapping it out that way helps people untangle their identity 
from the tech world, from their roles, identify the things that are important to them and where else they can find them, whether that be industry or company or, or job role. Um, and then start to to craft, I guess, basically a checklist. So if you're looking at, okay, I can, I can bear to let go of tech, but I need to have these five things. Then it's almost like, okay, well, I, I'll get four out of five of these things if I'm going to the healthcare sector, which is going through a massive digital transformation at the moment. Cool. Okay. This is the path for me. And it's almost like you're at the same time of dealing with that emotional and personal aspect of it. You're almost kind of turning it into some kind of objective checklist in terms of what is important to me, what fits with my values, what fits with my life goals, and where can I actually achieve this? Because if I can be in a world and live in a a world and have a job where all my vitals are being met, then my sense of fulfillment, my sense of purpose, my sense of well-being is just going to be so positive and and so high. Um, So I think that as well, it's, it's it's one, it's a psychological emotion thing, emotional thing, and another kind of a, a practical thing. How do I remove myself from this environment and find a different one where my needs are, are going to be fulfilled? And in our high-paced or fast-paced world, a lot of people just don't spend the time really thinking on those things at all. I mean, maybe someone out there listening never has, or they don't, they don't know how to determine what their values are because they've never thought about it. It's not something you can come up with in, you know, five minutes. It it takes a little bit of reflection, maybe some journaling, something like that to help you find clarity. Absolutely. And this is where kind of, again, you're nothing's wasted. That foundational time I had at the Samaritans, that's all it was about. That first step is not about solutions. That first step is, is dealing with the distress and starting to understand what's important to you. Um, and then we can go through all the, pra- the practical stuff is the, it feels like the hard bit, but is the easy bit. Because the reality is, even if you jumped into a, you know, another job two weeks later, if you never at any point in your career take the time to figure out that early stuff, those, those vitals, what's important to you, it'll break at some point, whether it be burnout, whether it be leaving your job in your mid forties, um, you know, it's, it's going to hit at some point. I think what's interesting, particularly about the, the Gen Z that are joining the workforce now, they seem to already have realized this. They seem to already be prioritizing these things like, you know, I want values aligned, my values aligned to the organization I work for. I want to have work-life balance. I want to have flexible working opportunities. I want development opportunities. They seem to already get it. And people are just, you know, losing it over, you know, how entitled these young kids are. And it's actually like, this is, this is how we work sustainably. If we get that right from day one, Ugh, it's not going to be brilliant for, for us as humans, but in terms of business, commercially speaking, we're all going to be more successful. The alternative view I've heard of that is that every assumption that previous generations have had about stability and, and progression in career has been like in the first 18 months been betrayed to this generation, right? Yeah, but also think, who are these kids' parents? These kids' parents are probably people who got laid off in the global financial crisis. Absolutely. So they've never they've never necessarily believed in any of that stuff. That go out, go into debt to get your your college uh diploma and then get a good paying job and you can stay there or even maybe move around in those careers and and you'll be able to purchase your own home or affordably raise a family, take vacations, like all of that assumption has been betrayed to this generation. So they've peeled back all of the kind of materialistic things and and they're only left with the psychological things. And 
well, the assumption is that I'm going to lose my job at some point in time, um, that I will be betrayed by, you know, some kind of uh, financial tectonic shift that doesn't have anything to do with me. So what do I need to focus on in the meantime, to be productive and happy and, and self-actualized and fulfilled? I suppose it doesn't matter which way you get there, but you do have a generation of people who are are more focused on that, right? It's a, it's a trend. It's not everybody, but it's it's definitely. I, hopefully, it's healthier for the people, their careers, and the organizations that they they go on to lead. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that it it would if people are starting their career and their working life with this mindset and this mentality. They're the people, from my experience, make pretty good leaders and pretty good managers because they have a bigger view of what work means to an individual whilst also understanding the importance of of vision and mission and purpose and having meaningful work. I think like most things we're seeing a very you know hard swing the other way particularly post-pandemic which was just another you know another massive disruption in in our working lives and so I, I'm, I'm sure that this this tension we're seeing between organizations and employees and employees will ease and I'm sure some of those stronger Gen Z ways of, of thinking about the world may soften. I remember talking to one of our guests in our podcast and he was like yeah Gen Z we need to still nurture that you know that hope but let's be honest they haven't been hit enough times by the life stick yet like they're gonna you know something's gonna come along and it, you know it, it probably sadly will but I think it it's finding that that middle ground. We can be fulfilled in our work and make money for our business. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, for sure. I want to ask a question about the person who's been laid off. When they go and interview for their next job, how would you recommend they approach talking about that event that happened to them? Is it a knock on someone to say, well, I was laid off from this company as part of this reduction in force seems to be a negative connotation with, you know, having to bring that up in an interview or getting asked about it. So in terms of how to answer that question, if, if you are asked about mm-hmm. it, I think that the first thing I would say, and it's true of anyone who has either been made redundant, either in tech or in another industry where maybe the redundancies were much smaller or just decide to take a career change. The advice is always to be look forward, don't look back. So to rather than, you know, talk about, you know, how awful that experience was and, you know, how personally attacking it was and is actually going, yeah, that 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 happened. My focus now is on pursuing a role with you. And the reason that I'm excited about this role is because it enables me to use these skills that I built in Twitter, Google, Amazon, in this environment and achieve, hopefully achieve X, Y, Z. I think that's the first thing is to deflect forward. That said, there has been so much media attention around Twitter. Meta, Amazon, there's been so much media attention and so much public backlash to people who've been made redundant. You know, I've worked with people who've been trolled on social media, you know, being called privileged in how, you know, this is what you deserve because you were living in Ivory Tower with your, you know, your inflated salary. It's, it's been a very different situation. And I think hiring managers and particularly people in, in HR and people in culture are aware of this. I think this is again where if you've taken the time to deal with that redundancy emotionally, psychologically, you can sit there and say, yeah, that was a really tough situation. So I engaged a coach and I worked with them for three, five sessions, worked through, 
you know, the, that experience, close the door on it, work through what I wanted in my career, start to get excited and look forward. And this is why I'm here today to talk to you about this job. I like that. What if we turn the perspective just slightly to the other side? Let's say you're the manager or leader who has to execute the layoff. What is the psychological impact and processing of someone in that seat? It's tough. I've I've personally have, have had to lay off two teams in my career, which and it's not I'm, I'm not that old. It shows you know how kind of you know volatile the the economy has been, and it sucks. It's rubbish. It's it's particularly if you're a manager that truly cares about for your team and has empathy for your team. It's a really hard thing to to go through. So similarly, that person needs that support because they're experiencing the same thing from the other end. This massive, you know, immediate change they need to execute, but their own psychological transition of of losing these people that they've developed, they've nurtured, they've coached, they've, you know, got to this this point of of excellent performance, that too needs to be mourned and and managed. So I think it's actually the same process for for any manager who's having to do that. And that's where it comes down to really the organization putting in support not only for the the people that are being made redundant but the people who remain managers and and police alike and from a commercial perspective you know we all know that redundancies can make sense you know that the tech industry was arguably over you know there's over hiring during the pandemic they were chasing a, a growth focus model rather than a profit focus model the commercial argument is understandable we get that it's not a question of if you need to make layoffs it's how you make those layoffs and that in itself speaks to your employer brand, it speaks to your values as a, an organisation, your culture as an organisation. And I think, you know, when we, we even look at the difference between Stripe and Twitter, you know, they made layoffs at a very similar time. And, you know, the CEO of Stripe wrote a public letter about how difficult this was, the support they were putting in place for people. And then, you know, you get Elon Musk who walked into Twitter headquarters with a, a sink just so he could, you know, tweet, I'm now the CEO of Twitter, let that sink in. Okay, great, wow. So I think it's really a case of... You know, for, for the manager themselves, they need that support, that process um, to make sure they're doing the that whole redundancy process in the right way, an em- empathic way, in a supportive way. But what's interesting is that that aftercare for the people who remain, there is a survivor's guilt that can come with, with people not being laid off when there has been mass redundancies. A change needs to go through that psychological transition. I think that's a really great opportunity for any organisation, whether it be big or small in tech or otherwise, to kind of take a moment to go, what are we doing here? You know, if we've made such a massive reduction in our workforce, how has that changed our mission? How has that changed what our values are? How has that changed what we want to achieve in the next two years, the next five years? And refresh that whole narrative for your people. Because the best thing they can they can experience is that support to manage the psychological transition of being in a whole new organisation. It's not, you know, it's not the meta that existed yesterday. It's something completely different now. But actually engaging in that process of, well, this is what we want to achieve. This is how we want to get there. This is your role in that mission delivery. Are you with us? Kind of getting the person to recommit to the cause. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I suppose an important part of that is that leadership vision that acknowledges any mistakes that have happened that have led to that situation and and reinsurance that the layoffs are over. It's like one of the things that I noticed was this kind of rolling series of layoffs where instead of like one sharp pain, it was this kind of drumbeat, you know, of every other month, another 6,000 people are going to be laid off from like one organization. It's like, oh no, how productive and effective 
is that organization while that's happening? And, and are there people that you want to keep that are going to leave because of that environment? Because that, that can be just incredibly stressful and painful. Yeah, because you're still in that that state of ambiguity and flux and uncertainty. And, you know, there's there, there are plenty of psychologists out there who will always make the argument that do whatever you can, you know, whatever you can business-wise commercially to avoid making layoffs. Because however well you make layoffs, it is going to have an impact on the performance of your business, the morale of your people. It, it just will. So the, the first option is always try, try to avoid, you know, but if we get to that point where you do need to make redundancies, absolutely, you know, and, and as brutal as it is, you know, for these tech companies to lay off tens of thousands of people, the intention is exactly that, you know, that we're, we're, we're making this really difficult decision. We're going to manage it in the best way we possibly can for our, our people that are leaving and our people that are staying, but then so that we can, we can have this environment that we can provide some kind of, some kind of certainty, some kind of stability, some kind of, you know, this is what the future looks like and where it's going. These drips and drabs of, of redundancies. Exactly what you say, the, you know, the, the morale of the team is, is never going to recover. Your good talent is going to see that this is an untenable situation. Start applying for other roles. Yeah, if, if you're going to do it, try and do it all in, all in one go. Let's maybe use this opportunity to talk a little bit about your work at Oblong to kind of try to foster high-performing workplace cultures. I want you to zero in for a second on Leanne's moment of getting into psychology or the thoughts around why she got into psychology. She saw someone who was a psychologist help people using that discipline. So she saw the impact of being a psychologist and what that could do. And it really left a positive impression on Leanne. It made her interested in the discipline. She was curious about it. And she ask that person, hey, how would I go about getting into this field? What do you recommend? That That's an effective model for anyone out there listening. When you go to a community group meeting and meet someone new, when you meet someone new in a social situation somewhere, be curious. Ask for recommendations if you're truly interested. And who knows where you might be able to take yourself once you get that kind of advice. The experience at the Samaritans organization was quite interesting, and it just makes me think that so many of us could be better listeners from participating in a service like that, although it did sound incredibly hard. If you recall, Leanne said that that experience with the Samaritans, though it was very beneficial to her in gaining some very relatable and transferable skills, it helped her realize that she did not want her specialty to be clinical psychology. She would prefer it be something else. And there's also a lesson in when to lay something down or when to stop doing something here, because Leanne knew that the shift into her next role, which was more of a job coach, would require the giving of advice more so than just the listening. And because she wasn't really supposed to give any advice as part of the Samaritans organization, 
she chose to stop doing that so that she could build more skills and shift her mindset into more of an advice giving type role. So maybe you're doing something on the side or in your normal work that's conflicting with some other area where you need to build skills. Think about that and any conflicts that might arise. It could be that you need to stop doing something in favor of building skills in a different area. Something to be mindful of. I had not heard about the cover letter idea before this specific discussion. So that's one that stands out in my mind as extremely helpful, as well as keeping the format super simple because application tracking or applicant tracking systems can't read fancy formats, including fancy headshots. That doesn't mean you couldn't put your fancy headshot on your own blog site or web page, something like that, if you wanted. If we go into the layoff topic for a second, that process of decoupling the things you like from the context of the company you work for, whether it's in big tech or other, to me, it's a lot like collecting product telemetry data from your software and taking a look at high-level patterns and trends and similarities across the board. So we need to be taking our own product telemetry points over time and seeing some of those patterns on what we enjoy, what we don't enjoy, it's important that we look and keep tabs on our vitals, that framework that Leanne was mentioning. What are the things that we value? What are our interests? What about temperament? What time of day do we do our best work? What are some of our life goals and what are some of our strengths? If we can start thinking about and being mindful of those things, we can use them when it comes to targeting what our next job role should be and our next company even. But I really want to underscore this point about taking time to process what's happened, whether you are someone who was impacted by a layoff and no longer have a job, someone who remains at the company that just had a bunch of layoffs, or even the leader who had to execute on those layoffs. She really emphasizes the time to process. And if we don't take time to process and mourn a little bit over the sudden event that happens, because it is sudden, regardless of where you've been in those three categories, it's always surprising. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it is always surprising. I love this idea that Leanne and Al have coined about nothing being wasted. No experience you've had is wasted. We can bring skills and experience from anything in our lives into that next job. It's just, are you mindful of what the skill and experience is and how transferable it is to that specific next role? That's the important one. Is this something that I should highlight on my resume or in an interview discussion with someone that is very transferable, but unless I communicate it, no one else may know that on the surface. That was some good advice from Leanne on on how to handle going through a layoff in an interview. She tells us to certainly acknowledge that it happened if we're asked about it, but use that as a springboard to talk about the skills we gained from the job we were in while we were there and how it could help the company we're interviewing with now. Taking that future focus approach, not being negative or, or looking backward, but looking forward about what could be at this next company, because that's the thing we need to be focused on. If you are someone who's feeling overwhelmed 
during this time or have been through a layoff yourself, just know that Al and Leanne absolutely offer a a free 30-minute consulting call that you can book through their website on oblonghq.com. We'll make sure and put that link in the show notes, but feel free to reach out to them if you have a need and just want someone to listen. If you're looking for other episodes that talk about people who have been through layoffs and what they did, here's some good recommendations for you. Some of the earlier ones that maybe we haven't mentioned in a while, John Hildebrand, episodes 37 and 38. He went through an unexpected layoff. How did he handle it? What did he end up doing? We talked to Mike Burkhart in episodes 64 and 65. Your position has been eliminated. What did he do to figure out what was next? Andy Surwich went through this in episode 158. Louise Bunyan in episode 163. She was made redundant. And that was part of the genesis of starting a new business. Shalvi Vaklu in episode 210 was given the choice in a layoff situation of being laid off or taking a different job. Leah White shared some advice with us from the viewpoint of a sourcing recruiter in episode 213 about how we should handle layoffs or think about them. And then Jason Langer talked about his layoff experience in episode 218. And then, of course, one of the most recent discussions was my co-host John White's stories from episode 220 all the way through 223, where he recounted what it was like to be laid off, be part of the reduction in force, all the way through to getting that targeting and getting that next job that he happens to be in now at the time of this recording. So it makes you wonder, what's left for part two? That was so much great information. We're going to talk a little bit more about the work that Leanne does as part of Oblong HQ for other companies. We'll talk about some of her experiences as a manager. Tune in next time. We'll see you then. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at BJourneyman, Finnick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off. Adios.